Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to another episode of Hidden Histories. For today's episode, I spoke to Emily Cock, who researches disability and disfigurement in the early modern period. And more specifically, we talked about the 17th century, the result of the civil war on veterans and some of the characters that emerged during the Restoration period. Much like other histories, disability history is in the process of being recovered. So speaking to Emily was enlightening and surprising. I hope you enjoy this podcast and please do check out the show notes for links to what we discuss. Emily Cock, welcome to Hidden Histories. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast because you uh, research an incredibly interesting subject, which is disability and disfigurement in the early modern period. I'm really interested in starting to, I, know, I mean, I know you research so much around this this period and it's a very, very vast period of history, but I just wanted to hone in a bit on your research into the Civil War to start with, mm-hmm. because the Civil War had a massive impact on disability because, I, am I right in thinking that it was the first major conflict, certainly, you know, within within England and Britain, the first major conflict that involved so much heavy artillery, therefore that resulted in massive injury. I think you must know more about artillery than I do. <laughs> I, I could neither con- confirm nor than deny that. Um, we've certainly got sort of lots of veterans beforehand and, you know, any medievalist will come forward with really dramatic injuries um, and people sort of surviving with all sorts of uh, embodiment. But you certainly do see sort of en masse veterans having to be supported perhaps um, in, a, in a way that uh, sort of Brit- the British nations hadn't had to deal with um, before that point. So somebody that you research uh, in quite a lot of detail is the character of Thomas Fairfax. So mm-hmm. he was a uh, parliamentarian leader, general of the... Yes, general. The general. Um, and so he was... I had no idea that Fairfax was disabled. I mean, how did he become disabled and how was that... How was that managed? Okay, so I think it's kind of works worth kind of picking up the term disabled um, to just to start, so we're sort of on the same uh, same page because it's quite contested um, as a term to apply to the early modern period um, and even today. So I use what's called the social model of disability, which sort of separates out the physical sort of impairment or the fact of of difference around the body or the mind and the sort of barriers and social treatment that 
turns that physical or mental difference into a disability. Um, so the sort of the classic example is um, sort of someone who has some kind of bodily impairment that means they use a wheelchair, and then that is turned into something that is disabling because the world is set up for people who don't use wheelchairs. Um, and so that that kind of disability can be addressed and in a sense lessened by sort of putting ramps and buildings and those sorts of things. There's many different kinds of models and sort of criticisms around that. Um, so sort of uh, critical disability studies sort of points out quite rightly that there are certain types of embodiment and sort of facts about physical and mental difference that society can't fix. So pain is sort of a classic one. So when we talk about sort of Fairfax as a disabled uh, figure, he is in a way sort of another figure of that period with exactly the same kinds of physical sort of differences about their body wouldn't be. So we have to kind of dig down into that a little bit. Uh, so Fairfax was a very lead from the front general. He gets injured quite a lot. There's one point where he gets sort of slashed across the face with a sword. So he develops a very striking um, facial scar, which is, it sort of shows off in all of his portraits after that point. Um, it becomes quite a popular thing for, you know, sort of men with, with dramatic war wounds will sort of show them off. Um, if they can be kind of neatly presented, it's... Uh, it's a it's a fine line to draw uh, in terms of going look at how manly and and brave I have been, um, but also sort of it can still be kind of civilly presented uh, to the viewer in portraiture. But later in life, he also develops uh, gout. Most medical historians will sort of say it's probably uh, probably gout. There may have been other things and sort of old injuries playing up. It's always a bit hard to tell. Um, but he starts to use a wheelchair um, sort of quite late in life. Um, so in terms of being sort of a disabled figure, whether that's sort of his facial difference or the fact he uses a wheelchair, um, that's sort of something that sort of occurs at different stages over his life. So the fact you've seen his wheelchair, haven't you? I have. And the fact that it survives, I think, is pretty is pretty amazing because does that suggest that this type of device was uncommon during the period, or does it suggest that it was treated with a sense of reverence because it was attached to Thomas Fairfax? I mean, I'm I'm quite intrigued as to how the wheelchair itself became an object that has survived all of this time, and it's how it, that has been attached to him. That is a good question. So as far as I know, the wheelchair stayed in the family. Um, so I saw this uh, at the Civil War Museum in Newark, um, in 2018 and it was part of an exhibition on sort of civil war medicine and it had sort of his boots and I think there was a sort of a flask uh, it was sort of a few bits and pieces that belonged to him but the chair very much dominated the room it's quite large um, and you can find images online if you just sort of google but they were definitely not common during the period we sort of only know of a couple sort of a, a few sort of here and there and they tend to be quite elite figures um, so Louis the 17th? <laughs> <laughs> who's, the, who's the big Versailles Louis? We don't, yeah, we, we're one of the Louis. Yeah, okay. <laughs> one of the Louis. <laughs> so one of the Louis uses one and he's sort of able to do that because he has his grand gardens and sort of laid out pathways. And, you know, if there's anyone who is able to alter an environment to suit a wheelchair, it is going to be the King of France. <laughs> Um, so no, they are definitely rare objects. Um, and it is very interesting that the family sort of chose to keep this, if I'm right, that it has stayed within the family um, for all these years. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that that's amazing. And But what can, I mean, what can the wheelchair tell us about how people with physical disabilities or impairments 
how they manage daily life. Do you you talk about these sort of about the Palace of Versailles and things being put in place and structures being changed in order to accommodate people? Was that sort of thing happening? During this period in England as well, is this wheelchair demonstrative of that, do you think? Not generally. So I think he is able to use the wheelchair within the... I I don't know whether he used it outside the house, whether it was just within the house. Um, So it's Appleton House by this stage. It's the more modern Appleton House. Um, they, They redo it. They replace the medieval building, which was quite pokey, apparently. But, you know, having nice, nice smooth floors, nice wide doors... You know, if, if you were sort of further down the social scale, that's much harder to achieve. But there is interesting work being done around Bath in particular as sort of a city that going into the 18th century is very much catering for essentially a disabled population. It's going, if you are ill, if you have phys- um, any kind of physical impairment, come to us. Um, and so there's sort of interesting work being done around sort of the landscaping and the public kind of spaces of Bath as very much set up for sedan chairs or any kind of any kind of mobility aid because that's the population that they're targeting. That's really interesting because I actually grew up not far from Bath and um, I was always told that the pavements were really wide to accommodate the length, the width of women's skirts. But perhaps, perhaps it was to accommodate sedan chairs and wheelchairs, you know? That's fascinating. So, I mean, during this period where were disabilities acknowledged and ability taken into account? So was it was it accommodated for? Were people treated with equality? Or do you think that this was a case of an able-bodied man's world? Ooh, that's quite a big question. And it is something that sort of is being investigated a lot more. So there isn't a category of disability in the way that it sort of operates as a category now, you know, can be a protected characteristic or anything like that. You can sort of see particular instances where it's having to be sort of addressed administratively. So the people who are petitioning for support after the civil wars are kind of a good example. They're having to prove uh, that they are physically incapable of sort of supporting themselves and their families anymore. And and they're sort of in need of particular support or particular accommodations. We We might use that term. But it's also sort of more philosophically, there's a broader understanding about all bodies within a Christian mindset, all bodies as sort of infirm post the fall. We are, we, none of us are perfect. So, I mean, it's not a glory age of, um, of, of physical difference, <laughs> but there are sort of more accommodations around these things. It's one of the reasons it's a really interesting period to sort of be looking at historically and, and looking at disability, because we really don't know <laughs> so, so much of this and what people's experiences were really like. Yeah, so it's not, it's not a case of it needing to be like Sparta, but then it's also not quite a case of... <laughs> everybody being catered for equally as well I mean no no (laughs) I mean I imagine of course if people were especially people who were laborers or um especially prior to the to the war physically unable to work therefore earn earn money I imagine that there were these petitions were largely for income yes they do tend to be and they tend to be quite emphatic about the different ways that they've been trying to earn income um, so a, a case I, I quite like is um, one uh, by a man called Thomas Calverley, who loses both feet in a battle. Um, so he petitions for, he's, he's part of a group of soldiers, and they petition in part for some money um, so they can rent a horse so that he can travel home. And he pops up a little bit later, and it t- transpires that he has been supporting himself as a scribe 
so you know he, he can't do physical work anymore uh, so he does he works as a scribe and it's only when his eyesight fails and he can no longer support himself as a scribe um, that he then asks for admission to an almshouse um, and that extra level of support so arise evans it's a wonderful name for a prophet he, he's just born as Reese Evans, um, and it's, it's a little bit of a, a, a fuzzy bit in the historical record to the extent to which he chooses a rise and the, or whether the sort of English people were mispronouncing his Welsh name. But he goes, actually, a rise works, I'll stick with a rise, because he becomes a prophetic writer. He is born in Merionethshire uh, in Wales, but he travels off to London um, and starts receiving visions, which he then publishes sort of saying first it's foretelling that the civil wars will come then it's sort of foretelling what's happening and being a good royalist he quite often then has visions sort of suggesting that the king will or should win and then when that doesn't happen uh, that Oliver Cromwell should sort of do all he can to bring Charles II over. He does suggest Charles II marrying one of Cromwell's daughters, which would have been interesting. Um, so he gets a little bit of trouble and he's quite well known to uh, sort of medical and disability history for the fact that he's he's sort of been read as someone who is mentally ill. So the, his visions, it's sort of older scholarship that's like, did he have schizophrenia? So those sorts of questions. And he is actually essentially locked up at one point by sort of friends of the family who are concerned that he is sort of spreading treasonous assertions within his visions. But I came to Arise Evans because after the restoration of Charles II, he has some kind of growth or um, sort of infection maybe um, in his nose and he sort of comments that sort of 1659 um, that his face has changed quite dramatically that uh, his sort of neighbours are commenting on it and they don't recognise him and he has a vision that the king can cure it so he tries to seek out Charles II um, he first tries to go through sort of the more formal admission process to be touched for what's called the king's evil, sort of scrofula. Um, so there were f formal uh, ceremonies you know, once a week where all the people who were suffering from this particular condition uh, could line up at the Palace of Whitehall and be touched by the king quite quite literally. He would sort of put his, you know, he, there would be prayers, there would be anointments, uh, then he would put lay hands on, on the generally the neck of the sufferer and that would cure this particular condition and this was something that the monarchs had been doing sort of back into medieval period yeah, yeah. Kind of um, sort of washing of the feet and things as well I think yeah it, it starts to form a really kind of it, it's a really important sort of point where the, the king sort of meets the common people um, and Charles II very much seizes on this as sort of a nice kind of bonding um, exercise essentially don't um, get rid of me I'm like. okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah they, and there's and there's a big backlog there's there's crushes of people who have been waiting through the whole interregnum and he's finally back so they're you know banging on the door there is one account of of, of literally uh, someone being crushed to death by the, the crowd trying to trying to get in um unfortunately but arise is actually denied entry to the formal ceremony and we and it's a bit hard to tell whether it's because um the king surgeon didn't think this one was King's evil, and so you know we don't want you rocking up because if you're not cured, then that looks bad. It's bad publicity, um, or whether his kind of reputation for madness and kind of imposing himself on on people um, mean that they kind of want to keep him away from the public. 
Yeah. <laughs> so he ends up sort of taking the more informal approach, knowing that Charles will be in St. James Park doing his kind of parades and sort of uh, approaching him more informally to be touched on the nose um, by the king, which does cure him. So he was right the whole time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It does kill him. I mean, so particularly facial disfigurement, whether that comes via means like Thomas Fairfax having the uh, scar across his face or whether it's something else, illness-related or birth, what what were the suspicions and, in turn, diagnoses around these sorts of disabilities? A lot of the time it depends very much on what kind of backstory is attached to the particular disfigurements. Um, so something I've looked at quite a lot is uh, nose, nasal disfigurement, um, and its association with syphilis because that can cause sort of the collapse of the nasal cartilage. Uh, also, if you treat it with mercury, that can also cause all sorts of problems. And nose reconstruction is one of those things that is available, but they don't do it. Um, so I've sort of looked quite a lot about why that was the case, but also the weird kind of myths and, and stories that become attached to this particular kind of nose reconstruction technology. But it causes interesting sort of circumstances. So another uh, Civil War sort of facial injury is um, the Earl of Arlington, um, whose portrait is in the National Portrait Gallery. You can go and see it. Uh, and the thing you will notice, or at least the thing that I noticed as a nose person, uh, is he's got the little tiny strip of, of uh, velvet over his nose. And it turns out that it's covering a, a scar uh, from the one skirmish that he was involved in uh, during the Civil War when he was fighting on the Royalist side. Uh, and when Charles II comes to the throne, he sort of starts to wear this patch um, as a way of kind of drawing attention to the fact that he, you know, I was injured in your, your father's service, Your Majesty. 
And this kind of works for a little bit while he's in favour and then he sort of starts to, to slip and, and the courtiers start putting patches over their nose and sort of dandying about the court um, to mock him. Um, so in that sense, he's, <laughs> he sort of tries to take control over the story of his body um, and emphasise, you know, I, I, have, I have served the king, etc. Um, and then it's sort of turned into a disabling uh, physical feature, you know, once uh, the others kind of take control of the story. Um, but I think he, he doesn't want to push it too far because, you know, he, he doesn't want to suggest there's too much damage to his nose just in case syphilis starts to sort of become, be rumoured. Sure. He, I think he trod very carefully there. He managed to just get the just about right amount of um, of coverage. Yeah. Um, Don't want people thinking of William Davenant. No. But that's, that's fascinating in itself, this idea that, um, you know, disability used as a sense of personal propaganda you know, uh, kind of, it's a little bit like the idea of, I don't know if, if, I feel like there's somebody in history who had an eye patch and therefore eye patches became fashionable, but that it could just be completely my imagination. Ooh, it, it, it rings a vague bell, but now I'm, now I'm. I'm uh, yeah, there's, I feel like there's somebody and that became like a, a, a trend or something. So how were people treated socially? with with disabilities and that's a more of a broader question so you know we could talk about that in in the sense of, of facial disfigurement to begin with um were people were people shunned or was it something that was that was considered the norm it's a good it is a good question it's one it's kind of one of the big questions that sort of driven <laughs> all, all of my research on this one of the things that actually has slightly struck me, I guess, was when I was looking at uh, cases of um, or surgical records around uh, scrofula, so the king's evil, um, which, like I said, sort of appears on the neck and sort of causes, it's quite it's quite a visible um, sort of scarring and, and sort of tumour, I guess, uh, would be a, a reasonable kind of description on the neck. And the length of time that people waited before they went and sought treatment. So it would be a visible, like a, a visible thing. It's on the neck rather than the face, but I sort of read these areas as kind of in conjunction with each other. And people are sort of, you know, waiting several years uh, and will only go to see the surgeon once it becomes painful. So in terms of sort of going about their daily life with a visible uh, difference, it doesn't really seem to have bothered them. I suppose a, a good a good flip side of that is then sort of looking at some of the surgeons' writings. Um, and any time they have to deal with the face, there's really good evidence in sort of the surgical manuals about the level of care that they will take uh, to prevent sort of more scarring, to sort of maintain movement. So you know, making sure they don't cut or what we would sort of know were nerves or um, sort of stopping burns. Um, so the extent to which they sort of work to prevent either more disfigurement or to sort of stop whatever disfigurement might have been occurring uh, without their intervention um, certainly suggests that there's, a, there's at least a little bit of pressure sort of coming from the patients to prevent um, disfigurement. Which is interesting in, a, in this period because the sort of phrase warts and all comes to mind because obviously Oliver Cromwell was quite famously painted with his his warts on his, on mm -hmm. his forehead, I think I'm the right thing, it was his forehead. Yeah, he's got a few. Yeah. He's <laughs> so it is interesting. That's interesting in itself. It's like how much was this idea, this idea of perfection or, you know, unity with other people, how, how, how much that was considered as, as an important 
factor or whether it was more about as with the case that you just mentioned with the the I, I forget his name was it the Earl of Arlington oh, Arlington yeah yep. the Earl of Arlington with the with his nose with his nose patch was it a case of demonstrating a sense of duty or a sense of um, service in some way there are two different things at play there that's so so you're saying that it was a combination of of both. Yeah, because I mean, you sort of have to remember that most people are wandering around with you know, smallpox scars, they're, they're, all sorts of things are, are sort of on their face at this point. So there's an, a level of acceptance around it, sort of everyone has, has something going on, but it's just kind of where those lines start to appear um, that's, that's kind of fun to tease out. Um, in, in regard to Cromwell, I think, I think Laura... Noppers would be sort of the, the big person who's written quite a lot about uh, Cromwell and portraiture um, and sort of his self, uh, his sort of presentation um, as a very conscious man of the, a man of the people sort of uh, like honest facade an honest facade no that's not the right word um, sort of an honest presentation which which you know is as much of a, a self-styling kind of self-identification thing as having the perfect skin sort of you know Elizabeth putting filler in to sort of cover the smallpox scars. It's, it's all, you know, conscious portraiture. No portrait painting is ever an accident. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So it is, so, you know, as, as you quite rightly say, there's going to be a lot of people walking around with things like fate, with smallpox scars because the availability to medication and, um, and you know, surgery just is, was, not, was not on the scale that it's nowhere near the scale that it would be even in the sort of, 200 years that followed so what sort of I mean you did talk a little bit about some of the surgeries that went on what sort of treatment was available to people who had uh, any sort of physical either disfigurement or disability well I suppose sort of I'll, I'll keep with the face for sort of narrowing that slightly if we look at any kind of recipe books so you know guides to housewifery are absolutely bursting with sort of washes for you know to get rid of freckles to get rid of excess hair to get rid of wrinkles to clear the skin to you know brighten the skin to lighten the skin it's all there <laughs> um you know if, if they had oil of olay they would have been fine <laughs> so there's, there's very much like they're all doing this they're washing they're sort of te- they're going to the barbers it's like that all of that level of kind of body work to, to use this modern term um, is absolutely there there's been lots of work around the levels of care and service that barber surgeons and even sort of out to apothecaries and physicians would be giving in what's called the, the, the medical marketplace you know if, if you want it you can get it yeah that's 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 fascinating that it's actually not not much has changed and I mean I feel like there could be some kind of circular sense of you know natural products that were very popular in the 17th century you can make a lot of money on those on those today lemon juice is apparently very good (laughs) emily where can people read more about this because i feel like it's something that is um you know it's not it's not a widely discussed subject as i mean in many cases you could argue disability is not a widely discussed subject so when we're looking at disability in history that is I feel like uh, there's a lacuna there, especially for public for public knowledge. Where would you point people to? And that doesn't necessarily have to be in literature. It could be, as you talked about, going to the Civil War Museum. I think one of the 
real kind of advantages of the pandemic actually has been the level at which academic talks have been put on online. Um, so there's actually an amazing amount of disability history on YouTube now or Spotify or, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've been listening to sort of talks and presentations from all over the world. Um, places like the Folger Library have been hosting all sorts of talks, which have been great. Organisations like English Heritage have had big projects on sort of properties that they own uh, and looking at where sort of disability history can kind of fit with, fit with there. Um, they've got lots of stuff on their website, actually. Um, and I think sort of National Trust have started doing that as well. So there's definitely a lot more that is starting to be made publicly accessible, particularly since sort of disability history in and of itself has, has quite a sort of public facing and, you know, often quite activist agenda um so it's, it's very much about putting people back into history who quite tra- often traditionally have not been there yeah yeah absolutely i mean there is a certainly at the moment i think there's a big surge to recover some of these these voices so um it's great to know that youtube the wonderful youtube that i think a lot of us are using at the moment is is one particular source that you can go to thank you so much emily for coming on the podcast it was an absolute pleasure talking to you oh it's been lovely thank you A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.